Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. believe it was big swinging dicks so there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some I would suggest if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives he needs a mirror I love the mansplaining I'm enjoying it what's mansplaining Senator? Welcome back to In the House and In the Senate, where we talk to the women of Australian politics about who they are, what they do, and why it matters. In the House and In the Senate is supported by Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality. As a leading humanitarian organisation working in 80 countries, Plan International Australia tackles poverty and supports communities through crisis. Plan work on some of the most important issues of our time, from gender equality, sexual and reproductive health rights, sexual harassment and action on the climate crisis. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken-Radburn. I'm a former federal and state political staffer passionate about making a positive change in our world. Let's get into today's episode. Today we're speaking to Danya Marnie. Danya worked for four years as an advisor to New South Wales parliamentarians, including then Speaker of the Legislative Assembly, the Honourable Shelley Hancock. She has worked across the law and government, including as a tip staff in the equity division in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, and recently as an analyst in Treasury's Foreign Investment Division. She is now studying English literature and philosophy and is working full-time as an advocate and freelance writer focused on issues impacting political minorities, particularly women and people of colour. Danya is the founder of Kate's List, previously known as Changing Our Headline, a non-partisan campaign to create safe, healthy and feminist culture in Australian political life, workplaces and beyond. She has bravely shared her own experiences and works to support others to do the same if they wish. Danya, thank you so much for joining me. Let's get into your story. You've worked in various political offices and you're a member of the New South Wales Liberal Party. What initially got you interested and involved in politics? Um, I think it probably had a lot to do with, I guess, my my parents and the fact that they came here as migrants. There was always a lot of conversations that we had when I was growing up about you know, the need to to do something for people who w- would never really have access to the opportunities that I would. And, and in particular, 
that was sort of contextualised in, in trips that we took to India each year. And I remember, you know, at around Christmas time, they would sort of say, like, we've given you money over the year. Do you want to spend that and get something for yourself? Or would you rather buy things and, and give them to, like, children and and mothers who are homeless and on the street who don't have anything? And I just remember, I suppose, from a very young age as a result, being struck by just how many children there were in the first place who didn't have homes, you know? Um, and because I think, you know, you're obviously not told to pay attention to those things, especially as a child. So being quite overwhelmed by that and having conversations with with children and, and with their mothers, I think in particular, sort of really shaped the reasons that I wanted to get involved in politics. Like I just saw that there were these groups of people that lacked any agency and were likely never going to be able to change that to the point that they'd be in a position to, um, you know, lobby for greater political rights or political action. So I think that was a really big reason that I wanted to get involved, just this understanding that in particular that be ethnic minorities and vulnerable people from low SES communities that wouldn't have the opportunities that, that I did, even though there were obviously difficulties. And, and I wanted to make the most of that um, to try to vocalise why there, there needs to be more of a focus on, on minorities. Um, and I think also just being a bit of an unhealthy nerd, you know, <laughs> uh, just I... did like way too much debating and public speaking. Like my first speech in that I did for public speaking in like kindergarten was, you know, you were going to write a speech about like, what are you most afraid of? And the girl before me, Laura, did a speech about how she was really scared of this like monster that lived in her closet. And then <laughs> I gave a speech about how I was most afraid of racism in the Shire. <laughs> you started young. I totally relate to like sort of the public speaking as a formative experience. I remember I was in like a state public speaking competition and the, that you had to do an impromptu uh, impromptu speech and the topic was building bridges and everyone's is like about building literal bridges and I toddle up there I'm like freaking eight or something and I'm talking about this like really traumatic event between like my grandfather and my mum and how they built a bridge through conflict <laughs> it's like so I very much relate tell me about those sort of like I really love your foundation and I think we have a very similar experience of you know seeing disadvantage and wanting to basically wanting to make a difference in this world what was what were the first formal steps into I guess the Australian political system of you know joining the Liberal Party yeah no I mean like I think the first thing to say is I suppose people have a lot of preconceived ideas about what it means to join either the Labor Party or the Liberal Party and I think it's helpful to kind of flag that I think whether you say I think in particular get introduced into sort of the moderate liberal left um, or the right of the Labor Party can sometimes also depend on your circumstances, just the people that you meet, the situations that you're in, the conversations you have. So I, I accept that there's a bit of fluidity there. Um, and some of the people I look up to most are people like Keating and other figures in the Labor Party. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And, and I suppose I'd always been thinking a lot about politics and where I felt I'd be able to, to make the most difference. And I think because of that focus on, you know, people who are a part of, of, of minority groups, I think it appealed to me 
to have less of a kind of like a collectivist way of looking at it. So I suppose I was a bit more drawn to small L liberalism, which said, you know, you should enable people to live, you know, the best version of a life that they define for themselves. And, um, you know, just a bit of a nerd moment, but it really appealed to me that like John Stuart Mill and like Harriet Taylor Mill were a controversial couple at the time. Sad but controversial meant getting married to someone who was divorced, you know, we'll skip over that bit. But for the... (laughs) So that period, it was cool, and they wrote, like, one of the first, like, seminal texts on on feminism. And so, you know, while a lot of people have this idea of the Liberal Party as being hyper-conservative, and some people are, you know, and, and I certainly oppose those people, I I didn't see the choice to enter the party that way. I saw it as a choice to enter into this group of people, um, to be clear, the moderate faction. People pretend there aren't factions in the Liberal Party, but there are. Um, and so I joined, essentially, I saw the decision to join the Liberal Party is functionally a decision to join this faction. And I wanted to make the Liberal Party more like that group. Um, in terms of, like, the literal events that led to my signing my name on a membership form, very, very weird. Um, so I was in a showcase debate at Parliament House in Year 12. Um, and in advice that I think he'll regret forever, Alan Jones, who was the MC of the Commonwealth Day proceedings, came up to me and was like, you know, you gave a really good speech on the economy, like, have you considered joining the Liberal Party? And that was just given, you know, my penchant for talking about my dislike of Alan Jones, sexual assault. <laughs> I was going to say, Why Alan I Jones is everything wrong with the party. <laughs> I don't think you've sent some nice tweets about Alan Jones in recent years. <laughs> no. <laughs> General, strong loathing um, vibe. Uh, I didn't enjoy accepting money from him when I won the debate. It was just like, is this reparations? Oh, I'll just pretend it's reparations. Um, <laughs> so, uh, like, he kind of encouraged me and I was I happened to be sitting with this, like, old group of women who were um, members of the Liberal Party in the South, and, and one of them was just like, I wish my daughter was like you and interested in politics. Like, you should get involved in the local area. And um, she was just, like, really lovely and, you know, just made it seem, like, a bit easy and, and provided, like, a bit of clarity as to the, you know, first step, like, what I actually needed to do. Um, and, you know, I think a big thing, especially when you don't have a background of privilege and you don't have any of those connections, is that it does feel quite daunting to, I suppose, take that first step because it's not like you know anyone. It's not like you know what you're getting yourself into um, or how the whole process is meant to look. So I think just having those initial conversations just, I suppose, gave me a bit of extra courage to sign up, Um, partly because I just wanted to stick it to Alan, but whatever. (laughs) How did did that journey evolve for you? So you've you've sort of like made that first step, the signature is on the piece Mm. of paper, you're a former staffer. How did that sort of formalise for you and sort of become a career path, for lack of a better word? Um, I remember, I suppose, my first event that I went to for the Young Liberals was like a Young Liberal Council um fun and I remember being uh, I know I remember being asked by like the then VP like just because embarrassing for him with first memories like here's your favorite cricket player it's just like really 
Oh my god! Really? Well, because you're because obviously Indian. I'm Indian and I have to be obsessed with cricket. Oh my! <laughs> That's obviously my identity. Thanks so much. Um, so that kind of like sticks in my head as sort of like the first thing anyone ever said to me at an event. I just felt like I needed to flag that. Uh, but <laughs> after that, we sort of like <laughs> had this like a huge lunch where some sort of you know moderates in the um and the liberals sort of like you know gathered a group of the young people around and sort of took them to this lunch and I um I spoke to Mark Curie who is sort of an MP there and was just sort of talking about like oh you know I'm, I'm hoping to sort of get some experience and I think it'd be useful to just start working in an office and just see what it's like on the ground and he said well like how about you work for me um and I was 18 so it was like my first job outside of high school and I started working for him and I think from there it kind of took on a bit of a life of its own because I think as most people who are staffers or have been staffers will know it's sort of it's the reason that you get the job isn't particularly to do with the actual job itself it's very much to do with a choice to mentor you and to help you grow and provide you with access to you know, a network of people in a political party and, and to build you up as a as a potential future member of the party executive or an MP. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think it just kind of really blew up from there. And I think that that can be quite a point of tension because you have these young people, like you mentioned you're eight, you were 18, going into what are very high-paying roles, roles with pretty extensive responsibilities and with this with this also this air of loyalty that sort of masks your whole relationship and all your interactions uh Danya taking us to a bit of a different topic you've become one of the most one of the strongest most visible advocates in bringing light to sexual harassment bullying and misconduct in politics We've jumped forward a little bit from 18 years old. You've shared your own story. Danya, for those listeners who perhaps haven't followed the media super closely, would you mind sharing a bit of an overview of your experience moving forward in politics that has catalyzed your advocacy over the last God knows how many years? Yeah, so I suppose like from that, first job when I was 18 it felt like I was on a clear track you know I went from staffing role to staffing role with a gradual escalation in responsibilities got more senior roles in different MPs offices and that kind of culminated in me working as an advisor to Shelley Hancock who was then the speaker of the Legislative Assembly in New South Wales Parliament and that was the role in which um, I worked when the incident took place that's been subject of media coverage. So, um, you know, I felt like, I think it's important to say that at this point, you know, I had invested years of my life into the party. Um, I, I saw it as my future in a career sense. I relied on it for my income. Uh, it was where I had all of my professional network at that stage. It also just characterised like my journey from functionally being a teenager to adulthood. So just the emotional, financial, professional links couldn't have been stronger at that time. There wasn't a version of my future where I didn't see myself continuing to escalate my involvement. 
And so at the point in time that I suppose the harassment started, which was like a Christmas party in 2014, where my perpetrator, God, like it just kind of makes me feel sick and frustrated that I just didn't know very much about coercive control and domestic violence at the time, um, came up to me and just when I seemed disinterested in a conversation, like took my phone from me and just wouldn't give it back uh, and said, look, you know, you need to talk to me. Um, stop looking around, stop focusing on other things. Like, I want you to be focused on me. And just literally took my phone. Not as like some joke, he just would not give it back um, because he was angry that I wasn't focusing on him in the conversation. And, I mean, I feel kind of like sick just reflecting on it just because I think it's it's really kind of, it feels like this gradual process of, of opening my eyes to it, both in a trauma-related sense because I wasn't ready to process a lot of it at the time And also just in terms of the journey I've had as an advocate since going public the first time and what I've learned about, I think, how coercive some of these experiences were with the benefit of hindsight. And so, you know, from that moment, it sort of, I I went to a counsellor after the eventual assault who characterised it as like domestic violence, but where the person was trying to coerce me into being in a relationship versus there having been a relationship between us because it would kind of follow this cycle of uh, abusive events, apology, um, you know, attempting to then make me feel bad for it, mm-hmm. um, a period of normalcy for a short time, and then another event would sort of like happen again. So it just sort of would continuously follow that and the, and the events would just escalate with severity each time. So it obviously started with that and him trying to, after that party, like kiss me and hold my hands um, in a way that at least, you know, allowed me an opportunity to move away to after um, the sort of Christmas break and at the very beginning of the parliamentary term, walking me through like park saying that he just wanted to have a have a chat um when I'd already at this point told him he wasn't to do anything like that and I just wanted to be friends not that it matters because I shouldn't have had to say that but him taking me for, for walks and then just starting to kiss me and grope me and say that it was my idea um and I think that was a really toxic part of it like he would never acknowledge those events as being um you know, he wouldn't even frame them as really being something we both wanted. It was my idea. It was my fault. I was the reason that I was in this situation. And so for somebody to always be framing it as something that was solely on me, I think especially at that time in my life, um, because I was also just quite young, um, was really, really challenging and hard. Like I couldn't help feeling kind of scared and intimidated thinking if this person who is so respected in politics is telling me that it's my it's my fault it's my idea like where are they getting that from is it somehow something that I'm doing is it something that I'm saying and it was sort of like that really started the sort of gaslighting and erosion of my sense of self and my erosion of my confidence in the events that I understood to be happening. I no longer trusted my internal narrative about the events that were happening to me. And I started to think I needed to doubt my understanding of what was going on around me. Um, 
And at a certain point, I just found this intolerable and kind of communicated to him that he just kept disrespecting my boundaries and making me feel awful. And I couldn't really handle being in contact with him anymore, um, even though I knew there would be really negative professional ramifications. Were you still working with him at, at this point of time? Yeah, so he was um, he was a staffer to a senior um, minister yeah. in parliament and that minister was, was, was and is very, very senior in the faction. And so it wasn't an option for me if I wanted a future in politics to not be on very good terms with him. I was expected to work with him. Um, and so it was just hard enough to make that decision, let alone the fact that he then sort of sends me messages one night at around like 10, 11 at night saying that he desperately needs to sort of talk to me. And I keep saying, you know, if you really want to talk to me, it needs to be during the day in a public place with lots of other people around because you clearly don't respect me when there's no one else there. And I then get a message from him a bit later that night saying he's in my suburb and he needs to talk to me. And I think just this framing again of him being the one who is hard done by in the situation and me being the person who has been spun by him throughout the time that we've known each other as the like agent of every hardship, the person responsible for everything wrong or bad, made me feel like I needed to let him in because I was just so used to feeling guilty and bad all the time. And so we kind of have a conversation on the couch and I he just asserts that he's going to stay there. Um, and this is my parents' house because I was living at home at the time. Um, and, you know, the only reason he actually knew the suburb in which I lived was because at this Christmas party afterwards I was going to be staying with my supervisor because my parents were away and I didn't want to have to travel home late. Um, and I'd mentioned where I lived just in the context of saying, like, oh, you know, I'm going to be staying with, you know, this supervisor um, afterwards because he was just asking what I planned to do after the party. Um, and so he'd also retained this, like, bit of information yes. from months prior and had come to my suburb and I was just also scared I think and my brain had kind of shut down like I didn't really know how to handle this situation I think the entire thing just felt like an effort at my, on my end at de-escalation yeah um and I think one of the most confronting things has been sort of reading this text message chain with a friend after the assault occurred that night where um, I am describing what's happened and talking to this person because I'm I'm so scared that I want to be in a conversation in case I stop messaging so that someone can call the police. And I'm saying things like, you know, I don't know how to feel. This person came to my place. Um, I don't know how big of a deal it is or isn't that they said that they um, were going to rape me at some stage if they weren't going to do that successfully that night they were going to do it eventually and just like you know hearing myself when I would sort of like I was reading some of those messages out loud to my like therapist like feeling unsure about how big of a deal it was that somebody was saying that they were going to rape me eventually like just seeing how trauma had impacted me at the time um into just this state of like losing any confidence in understanding that things that were done to me by this person could ever be seen as bad because I'd I'd always just been bullied into thinking that it was my fault um and like I think you know that course of events 
was just really, really awful. I think that a lot of women, either in a political context or outside of it, to be frank, mostly outside of it, we know this is just a societal issue, would relate to, one, having their internal narrative twisted and feel like they can't trust their own perception to diminishing events that have happened to them because, you know, as you lay out, those texts, those are just truly make me feel sick as somebody, uh, you telling me about them. Um, and I, so I, I take you, Danya, to what sort of, when did you reach out for assistance and how mm. did that sort of play out? What was your support network like? I think this, I think it's strange because I, I suppose, you know, there's often a narrative where very fairly and, and, and irrationally women wait quite some time before they confide in somebody about it. But I was telling my supervisor, who I saw as a friend, um, about every single incident as it was occurring. Mm-hmm. And the response that I got when I told him about every incident was to say, he's attractive, you should be like in a relationship with him, you should be with him. Um, I can't see anything wrong with what's happening. He just sounds a little bit lovesick. He sounds like he's into you. He sounds like he's pursuing you. Don't you feel lucky? And this included even after the assault saying, why did you let him into the house? Are you sure that you don't like him? Are you sure that you don't reciprocate? It sounds like he's in love with you. He's really great. Why don't you just go and be in a relationship with him? Um, and. So where I thought, I suppose I assumed I'd had a support network, I assumed that I had someone I could trust in my supervisor who I could confide in about these things as they were happening. My assumptions were clearly wrong, you know, and I, and I went to a number of people who were in the party at the time um, that the sort of assault happened because I was afraid of, of, of missing out on future political opportunities um, because I was too scared to be in the same place as my perpetrator. And the only thing that they really did was to have, like, um, the president and the vice president of the, the young liberals at the time, like, had a conversation with the perpetrator to say, oh, look, she's a bit upset, so it's probably best to avoid her for a little while. Um, and that was the only thing that anybody ever did or offered to do. No one ever actually had a conversation with me saying, here are your rights, here are the things that you're entitled to do, here are the steps that you're able to take. And so. At the point that I suppose I felt I had made complaints to my supervisor, I then made complaints more formally again to people in the party. I made complaints to people who were senior members of the like Liberal Party executive and to and to other individuals that I trusted. I like sort of subjectively felt like if if none of these people are coming back to me and saying, here are your rights, here are the things that you're able to do, here are the things that we're going to do to support you, then A, that must mean that my story didn't matter and was bullshit and they probably didn't believe me. Um, Two, that like maybe this conduct is just so normalised that no one even sees this as being particularly remarkable. Three, like maybe this person is just so senior and well-liked that I'll never have a shot in hell at convincing anybody to believe me. And I think four, that, you know, I just kind of felt like 
my internal sort of sense of, 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 of how valued I felt was just kind of falling apart because all of these people who I thought that I could trust had failed me. It felt that that support network I thought I had completely disintegrated because it, it failed to support me when I needed it most. Tell, and I think that just led to a huge crisis of conscience for me. Tell me about the experience of deciding to go public and to the media about your story and turning your trauma into advocacy for others. Um, I think it was it was really a struggle. Like it, it wasn't a decision that I made lightly. Like I struggled with it for years. Um, I took time away from politics after those disappointing experiences of trying to rely on a support network and then re-entered politics because, you know, I, I didn't I didn't want what had happened to prevent me from advocating for the rights of, of vulnerable people who also were likely to have gone through experiences just like I had. And I didn't want to let go of that. Yeah. And so I got back involved in politics and started trying to agitate again, not just for myself, but for other women both in the party and outside of it as well and just found it extremely disempowering and frustrating and felt like I hit these roadblocks at every turn and like I was being treated as an object of suspicion or potentially disloyal to have this story of what had happened to me that was so traumatic and involved senior figures in the party and being treated not like a human being but like a risk was I think a really really big catalyst for um sort of like changing my view that I could manage this in the political terms that were laid out for me by the party. Um, I wasn't going to be able to get the change that I needed through the terms they set for me. And so I, I decided that the only way that I was going to be able to create change was by confronting the party and by confronting society more broadly with what had happened to me and you know and that was in circumstances where both before I'd left the party the first time and during the time that I was really really involved in the movement before I went public I had just had so many women come to me with similar stories and all of them felt lonely and like they didn't know where to go and I just felt desperately like they needed to be some kind of a change here um, and that I never wanted to for anybody to feel as alone and as gaslit as I had um, with what had happened to me and it just made me feel sick that it kept happening to other people and I wanted to bring a stop to it and so I suppose that was really what pushed me to tell my story um, and so that was also a reason that when I you know, told my story with the Herald I launched a campaign at the same time which I launched as Changing Our Headline in 2019 to sort of support women who had gone through experiences of really serious misconduct, bullying or sexual violence in the workplace because whether you're working in politics or not, like whether it's an MP or whether it's the HR department at your company, they're not there for you. They're there to protect the interests of your employer. They're there to protect the interests of the company or the organisation or the government department that you work in. not there for you and that was a really really confronting realization for me there is no staff member when you are at work who is independent and they're specifically to support you and your rights because they're in direct opposition to the interests of your employer and that organization 
And so the reason that I founded the organization was was wanting to draw attention to that and, and campaign for, for, for rights for women who had nothing embedded in them, embedded in their institutional structures and embedded into legal structures that would serve them specifically in the way that they needed. And people always keep sort of asking, like, well, why aren't there high numbers of complaints or why don't people have a high uptake of complaints mechanisms at workplaces? And it was just this is why they know that they don't have any independent support. And so, you know, I wanted to both provide that independent support as much as I could for survivors in a support person and advocacy capacity and also just advocate more broadly on behalf of the women that I was hearing from, um, you know, for better media ethics and reporting on things like sexual violence because that really shapes our understanding of what the problems are through to reform to legislation that governs how women are employed. Um, and it's been really two of the kind of key outcomes that I'm sort of campaigning on at the moment are trying to create like a legal fund uh, to support women to get like barristers and, and other forms of legal support when they're making a claim. Because even if there are things like the Working Women's Legal Centre, which is also tragically underfunded, by the way, that doesn't actually give you any money to get a barrister and that costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And that's the sort of very real onerous financial barrier that women face if they ever want justice because, you know, for, for myself and for many other women, sadly, we often know it's the case that going to the police isn't going to yield us anything. So it's like a civil claim that's really our only shot at getting a remedy and that's just very costly. And the second thing um you know, is sort of really lobbying for there to be rights, not just on employers to make sure that the workplace is safe, but also rights that exist for bystanders, where if mm -hmm. you see something or know about something or know that something likely happened and you do nothing, you also are responsible mm -hmm. and creating obligations on those individuals to provide things like evidence um, in, in any workplace investigation or other proceeding where they can be disciplined if they're found to have known and to have failed to act. Danya, I'm I'm frustrated that I can't that we don't have more time, but I want to quickly ask you about what you think about this moment in time. We've sort of seen People have called this year, last year, a watershed moment. We've heard the phrase reckoning. What have you felt about this groundswell of women disclosing their own experiences and women coming together through March for Justice rallies? What do you think of this advocacy effort? I think it's really important in a broad sense that we're having we're having a real national conversation about the trauma that the vast majority of women endure. Uh, often repeatedly, not just once, but the reality for most women is repeatedly throughout their lifetime. But I think that there are a lot of problems with the way that we've been having that conversation. I think that there is a real tendency within the media and within society that we we need to confront of this unconscious racist bias that I know a lot of people are going to react to defensively, but I think it's inevitable that in an unquestionably racist society that the question is not if but how um, racism manifests in the decisions that people make and people are far more likely to empathize with what they know with what looks like them with what feels more known and natural and there has been an undeniable tendency in the media to routinely profile young 
white women um, or middle-aged white women who have followed sort of traditional career paths who are sort of cisgender and heteronormative. Um, and I think that that is a huge problem because our understanding of, of this problem, our understanding of the, of the individuals who are at the forefront of advocacy is skewed. It completely erases a lot of women of colour and First Nations women who are, in fact, leading this work. It was, it was very bizarre, for example, to have, you know, Brittany Higgins' disclosure treated as though it was the first disclosure that had ever happened in Australian politics and as though it was the start of bringing attention to these things when, you know, Britt had come to me months before she'd gone public through the campaign that I had established and where I had done all of this work um, in the lead up to that moment. And I know that that's like far from the first time that that's happened. You know, Tarana Burke launched Me Too in 2006 and, and really only got recognition after the tweets of a white woman online in 2017. And even then she had to battle for ownership over her IP because people kept thinking it was the white celebrity that had started everything. And I think that that's a really big issue that we need to confront, like the erasure of the work of women of colour and First Nations women. Yeah. And there needs to be a real reckoning in, in our understanding of, um, you know, whether we truly appreciate the scale of this problem, because we don't, because the media isn't telling the stories that it needs to, it's not profiling the women that it should. And so I think people need to start accepting within themselves that sadly they don't actually know the true scale of this problem. They aren't seeing all of the stories that they need to. And I think in particular for white listeners, there's an active responsibility here. Like I don't think people should feel bad or guilty that racism is inevitable, but I do think that they should internalise that they have a positive responsibility to use their privilege um, for a good purpose and to make sure that they are profiling stories of women of colour and First Nations women and that, you know, that they're, they're mindful and aware that the reality that they're living in isn't a fair or meritocratic one. Yeah. And so I kind of, I, I felt very mixed feelings about this. And, and I think in particular, it's also just been hard because a lot of coverage recently is focused on um, Kate, who was a woman who approached me through my campaign. Uh, and, you know, she became a very close friend of mine. And I actually renamed my campaign Kate's List on the first anniversary of her passing. And, you know, recently, you know, spectral police officer to provide a statement um, to do with the potential coronial inquest. And I think, you know, it's really absent just how much trauma there is. And, like, I think we often focus on these just the salacious details of assaults, mm -hmm. far less on the realities of what it's like to live day in and day out with trauma and, you know, the coverage and treatment of Kate and even Britain, the questioning of, oh, well, did they put themselves in these situations? Can we believe them? Are they unstable? All these sorts of things. Like I think this moment in time has is important, I think particularly because this moment in time has revealed how much is broken and how much needs to change. Um, and I think it's just it's very confronting sometimes realising how much there is to do, you know. Dana. I'm glad to have conversations like these that focus on political action and yeah. agency as a result because that's what I think needs to be the focus. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. We're going to have to do a second episode because I didn't get to half of my questions. But thank you so much for your Sorry. advocacy. No, you're fine. Thank you so much for your advocacy. Thank you so much for your work. And 
if if people want to follow you, where is the best place for them to go? Um, I would say the best place to go is Twitter. So um, my handle is like Danya J Manny. And so I'm on Twitter and I also have like a Twitter link through the Kate's list um, on my account as well. So I would say that those are the best places to follow me, but I'm planning to sort of start up with the campaign on Instagram and things like that. We will be hearing from you in the not too distant future for episode two. Danya, thank you so much. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing, and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye bye. Bye to you. Bye. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> See ya. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 